Lord, these words are more than we can bear. They are more than we can understand. Lord, forgive us when we think we've known this story so well that it has become familiar to the point of us not seeing the gravity, the tremendous nature of what is occurring here in Scripture. Open our hearts now once again to hear the gospel that is condensed in this moment. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And for many of us, those words are extremely familiar. The passion narrative in all of its forms and all four gospels, we, we know those stories quite well. The words are, are like words from a song that we have heard on the radio and never meant to learn so that there are parts of that narrative that we could come to and as the words are begun to be said, we could say them right along. We could sing the song right along with those words. So familiarity is one of the dangers that, that the passion narrative, in fact, all of Holy Week presents to us is the danger of familiarity for those of us who come time and time and time again to these events and to this narrative, we can become inured, we can become desensitized to the, to the tragedy that is here and to the glory that is here. It begins to become shallow to us, and God help us this morning that that won't be, to be the case. And one of the ways that we can prevent that from happening is if we focus on perhaps just one part of the passion narrative, one of the elements of the passion narrative, and from that perhaps we can move beyond the sense of familiarity into a sense of, of greater understanding and deeper appreciation and again have our our hearts that have perhaps been hardened through the year, softened and maybe even broken again by, by the gospel. And so this morning, let's just, let's take a look at that interaction on the cross between Jesus and those two criminals. And you know, Luke is very careful. He doesn't call them thieves. He calls them katorgos. Or kakorgos, kakorgos. It means evildoers. These are not thieves. They're not just criminals. He's, he goes out of his way to call these people evildoers. And that's significant because from the very beginning of the gospel, in Luke's gospel, Luke, the evangelist, has been at pains to show us that Jesus is willing to be identified with evildoers, kakorgos. And he does it right there at the beginning of the, of the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 3 when Jesus is baptized. Listen to, what, listen to these words that, that Luke uses in Luke 3, 21. Now when all the people, all the people, everybody, he's intentional about saying, of course, it wasn't everybody on planet earth. But you, Luke uses that phrase, all the people, for this purpose to show that Jesus is identifying fully with all the people. So it says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, when all the people were baptized and Jesus also was baptized. So from the very beginning of Luke's gospel, the, the gospel writer has been intentional about saying that Jesus 
is connecting with, he's entering into, he's identifying with not just the religious elite, not with just the religious elite, not just with the, the holy people, not with the good people, but with all the people and particularly with the evildoers. And so in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, uh, Jesus goes up to the booth of Levi, the tax collector. He's called Levi. He's called Matthew in other gospels, but in, in Matthew. But here he's called Levi, the tax collector. Tax collectors weren't just disliked because they took your money. No, they were disliked because they were collaborators with the Roman, oppre- the Roman oppression, the Roman occupying forces. They were selling out their own people to the Romans. They were despised. And so Jesus... What does he do when he comes across Levi? He says, come, follow me. And he left his booth and followed Jesus and then had a great feast for Jesus. And the Pharisees were standing outside or around and they were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and tax collectors and he eats with them. Jesus eats with these people. And Jesus said at that time, he said, it's not the healthy that need a physician, it's the sick that need a physician. I came for these people always willing to connect and to touch and to enter into the the lives of those people who were on the fringes, who were disconnected because of their either religious impurity, their their legalistic impurity, or because of their their genuine evil. And then again, uh, Matthew, I mean, excuse me, Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, we hear the story of Jesus has been invited, you know that story, right? He's been, he keeps connecting with, with the worst segments of society. He's, he's literally touching the worst segments of society. He's invited to the home of a Pharisee. And while he's reclining at the table, a sin, Luke says a woman who was a sinful woman in that city came in behind Jesus as he's reclining at the table and begins to weep and wet his feet with her tears and then, and then wipe her tears, his, her tears on his feet with her hair. And then she takes an alabaster jar and breaks it open and pours anointing oil, perfume over his feet and begins to, to anoint his feet with her tears and with that oil and weeps and kisses his feet. And the Pharisee says, if this man were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman was touching him. Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, say it, Rabbi. He said, one man owed a, owed a, a, a debt of $100,000. And another man owed a debt of $100. And they both had the, their master forgive them their debt. And which of those two men is going gonna, is gonna to love the master most and Simon the Pharisee says well the one who was forgiven the most he said I tell you you didn't wash my feet when I came into your house you didn't give me a kiss of peace when I came into your house but since I came in this woman has not stopped washing my feet with her tears and kissing my feet I tell you her sins are because her sins are many she loves much because she's been forgiven much. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. He lets people like that touch him. He keeps connecting with people like that. And it gets him into lots and lots of trouble. You remember in Luke chapter 10, the, uh, when somebody wanted to know, a lawyer wants to know, uh, you know, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Well, you know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, okay, that's good, Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus tells the story. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan. I won't tell the whole story. But the point of the story in one part is this, is that the worst person Jesus could use, the person who was most despised, considered the most sinful, the most unclean, the most morally contaminated person you could think of, is the hero of Jesus' story. And so at the end of the story, Jesus asked the man, um, who, was his who was his neighbor? Well, it's, it's, and the lawyer won't even mention his name. He says, well, I guess it's the guy who took care of him. <laughs> he won't say Samaritan. And this, this pattern continues in Luke chapter 15. Uh, he, we hear again the grumbling of the scribes and the Pharisees. This man eats with sinners and tax collectors. What is he doing? He keeps connecting with the wrong people. And Jesus goes through a, a, a series of three stories to tell the story of God's seeking love, God's tender seeking love for those who are so lost, so, so defiled that they have no hope for ever being in right relationship with God. And that's the way God is. You know, the greatest honor, the greatest honor in the Roman world was a triumphal entry into a town. And we just went through that, actually. We went through the Jewish version of a triumphal entry into a town in Luke chapter 23, in, or in, Luke chapter, in, in the Luke's gospel, the, the, the narrative of the palms. And then here in Luke chapter 23 that we've just heard this morning, we see that, uh, that the greatest honor of entering in to, uh, in the Roman world was to enter in a triumphal entry, a parade of triumphal entry. The greatest shame in the Roman world was to be led in a parade to crucifixion as an evildoer. And that's where we land in Luke 23. Jesus reckoned the evildoer. That's the way God is. That's the gospel. God is willing. Listen, Jesus is showing us because he, from the beginning of his ministry right to this moment when he is led out with other criminals, with other evildoers, kakurgos, he is willing, God is willing to go as low as he has to go to save. He's willing to keep humiliate. God is willing to humiliate himself and to keep humiliating himself, to crawl through the sewers of human depravity, seeking, searching for just one more person who will be willing to accept his offer of love and forgiveness. And while he is hanging there on the cross, the rulers, the religious elite, the, the, uh, the good people, they scoff at Jesus as he's hanging there between heaven and earth, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. What, do, what has to happen to your heart? So when you see someone dying in agony, you hurl insults at them in that moment. What has to happen to a human heart that our response to a person hung in agony and torture that we would scoff and revile and mock in that moment. It happens. And then the soldiers take up that same taunting theme. And finally, 
one of the convicts, and you got to think about this, y'all, okay? Remember, we're looking at this through the lens of, we're coming down and focusing with the lens of those two criminals. And one of the convicts, one of the criminals, one of the evildoers turns to Jesus. Now, how, and, and reviles him. How, how bad is that? How humiliating is that to have a criminal who is being executed next to you begin to insult you? And so he sneers at him, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, here's the point. What the rulers and the soldiers and the sneering criminal cannot see is that Jesus is, in fact, save, your, save yourself and us if you're the Messiah. What no one realizes, and almost no one realizes, is that Jesus is, in fact, saving others right now. That very moment, hanging between heaven and earth, that's what he is doing. And he is saving those others precisely because of the fact that he is willing to not save himself, to not save himself. And he just keeps saving even while he is dying and pour, he's pouring out God's love. Luke's gospel is the one where we hear this phrase uttered. Luke's gospel alone gives us these words, and they're absolutely Heartrending. I mean, we, this is not a sterile, clinical death. This is a death in torture. And in the midst of that torture, Jesus, is, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He keeps forgiving. He keeps saving. And in that willingness to be with us in our deepest shame and to love us unconditionally, that's where God's power for transformation is unleashed. And not just transformation personally, but for the entire cosmos is released in that moment. Jesus transforms shame into salvation. He transforms guilt into forgiveness on the cross. And through the cross, and this is the cosmic effect, Jesus transforms death into life. Now here's the amazing thing. Here is the power of God at work. Here is the light of God breaking through the darkest hour this world has ever known. The repentant evildoer, Kakorgas, sees something that no one else sees. Over Jesus' head, remember, there is a sign nailed to that cross. That cross. This is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. Luke 23, verse 38. Pilate, the Jewish leadership, the soldiers, and the blaspheming criminal all see that plaque, that sign, as a sarcastic, humiliating taunt. But not the repentant criminal. Think about this. Not the repentant criminal. Somehow he sees that, that that's not a, a, just a taunt. It's not sarcasm. It's the truth. It's the truth. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And what everybody else sees as humiliation, this criminal sees as a revelation of Jesus' true kingship. And so what does he say? He addresses Jesus as a king. The repentant evildoer addresses Jesus as a king. He sees that this cross is not a gibbet. It's not a scaffold. It, instead, it is a throne. 
His kingdom does not end on the cross. His kingdom is going to begin on that cross. And so he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me. Now think about this. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Of all the things that could have been said that day, this is the most unlikely. Because of the least kingly thing you could think of is happening to Jesus in that moment. And like he has done every time someone cried out to him from the beginning of his ministry, when everyone seemed to love, seemed to love this brand new rabbi out of Galilee, to the end where he has been rejected and crucified, Jesus offers new life and a new beginning and salvation. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And in that moment on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. We see the gospel crystallized into its purest form. The evildoer realizes that Jesus really is the Lord really is Messiah, really is Israel's king, really is the only one who can save him, and he is willing to come to Jesus on God's terms. Listen, on God's terms, not on human terms. Human terms are this. We've heard the human terms already. Come down off the cross and get us out of this fix. That's human terms of salvation. Come down off the cross and get us out of this fix. But God's terms are exemplified in that man crucified next to Jesus, and they are humility and surrender and honesty about who we really are. No evasion, no self-justification. There is no self-justification. There's no comparing ourselves with the other guy who is a little or maybe a lot worse than us. He doesn't claim victim status. It's just this. I deserve this, Jesus. I deserve what's happening to me. This man has done nothing wrong. We deserve to be here. This man has done nothing wrong. I deserve this. I am a sinner. But please, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your glory. Please, listen, Jesus, please, don't let go of me. Don't let go of me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that is our only hope, is that prayer. That's our only hope, is that prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not, Jesus, think about all the hard work I've done. Think about all of my achievements, Jesus. Have you seen my I love me wall, Jesus, with all my awards and achievements? Or it's not, Jesus, I am so much better than those people over there. If you don't know who they are, I'll show you on my Facebook post. Just nothing except Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus Christ, Son of God, remember us, your family gathered here this morning when you come into your kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.